Hello, this is Vulnerability Matters from the Money Advice Trust, our podcast series which examines from a range of different perspectives how firms are tackling the issue of consumers in vulnerable situations. Today's podcast was recorded in front of a live internet studio audience bringing together people from across the UK, so therefore you might notice the sound quality in some parts does reflect this. Hello, welcome to Vulnerability Matters from the Money Vice Trust. I'm Chris Fitch. Today we're looking at identification for the second time. Now, sequels are normally a terrible idea, Paddington 2 aside, of course. Everyone fights to grab the limelight. They were so cruelly denied the first time around. They're usually riddled with incomprehensible references to now completely forgotten events in the first outing. And there's always the awful creep creeping, sickening fear there will be a third instalment. However, our panellists have promised Aunt Lucy to be kind and polite, so the world will be all right. Our audience, hello, all have their episode one crib sheets to hand. Hint, part one was just about identification. Today we go a bit further. And everyone has vowed to leave no stone unturned in our discussion today. There will be no three call. So rejoining us to complete the discussion about how we move from identification to starting conversations, the techniques that exist for doing this, and how we get customers to welcome our interventions rather than complain about our intrusion, are Dan Clark, a specialist in vulnerability at Monzo. Hello. Dr. Elizabeth Blakelock, Principal Policy Manager for Energy at Citizens Advice. Good morning. Laura Tuff, Head of Vulnerability, Accessibility and Inclusion at Nationwide. Hi. And Mark Fiander, who leads on customer experience at Gain Credit, formerly Global Analytics. Plus, of course, our live audience will be sharing their own thoughts using the question box throughout. So let's start where part one finished, uh, with the move from identification to conversation. And let's look at how we start a conversation with a customer. So, Laura, starting with you, in, in 90 seconds, let's be brief on this one. Just what is your secret to starting a conversation about vulnerability with a customer who isn't actually expecting this at all? How do we start from cold? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I would say the circumstances in which you do this have to be within clearly defined parameters. There's not, it's not a panacea for every situation. So you need to have a, a high level of confidence in the accuracy of the data that has led you to want to start this conversation. Um, you need to have a clear reason why you want to start this conversation with the customer and that it's on an issue that the firm has license to engage on. Um, and it also has to be a topic where you know, you're actually able to offer tangible support to the customer to help improve their situation as a result of them engaging in this conversation with you. Um, and the engagement needs to be done in a way that's sensitive to all the negative ways a customer could react to it so it doesn't make them feel labelled or judged or singled out but at the same time it still feels personal and, and relevant to them so you know a good example would be something that Nationwide did um, in early March this year when Italy went into lockdown before the UK did we identified from debit card and ATM transactions members of ours customers of ours that were still in Italy and therefore may potentially be trapped or struggling to find ways to get home and we texted them proactively texted them based on identifying them through that data to signpost them towards information that could help them with the, that um, issue of getting home. But, you know, on the converse, a bad example would be, I remember having a, a company once pitched to me keystroke technology that could identify the early onset of Parkinson's disease. You know, what, what license does the financial services firm have to engage with a customer on this? And what, what tangible help could you actually offer them in that space? 
Um, so there's a number of reasons why it's so important to have tight parameters on this. Um, and that if you're starting a cold conversation because of those risks of false positives in the data, because of the risk of identifying a vulnerability that the customer hasn't identified in themselves yet, or the risk of identifying something the customer doesn't want you to know about them. And then also that risk of damaging the longer term relationship with them if you kind of creep them out by making them feel judged or watched. Mm. So there's, 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 there's contact that some customers might might be half expecting, such as those customers in Italy, and there's contact that customers won't expect. And we'll come back to that in a moment. Dan, what's your secret sauce? I love what Laura was saying about relevancy. I, I think I think you you absolutely have to be human. It's an absolute must. You need to communicate that the interaction exists to focus on the customer's needs. And if there's any there's any kind of overtone that the conversation is for the firm's needs then i don't think anyone's needs get met if you reach out using scripts template responses you might get stuck you might lose engagement they've got their place but in this context i think lots of customers do see through it and you need to reach out in this soft calm way you need to highlight what you've noticed and then put the ball firmly in the customer's court they need to choose whether or not they're going to return it if you try and force an interaction, and I think the urge, perhaps the temptation to force an interaction comes from focusing a little bit too much on the firm's needs, you're, you're much more likely to create resistance to create disengagement. There's always exceptions, obviously, but we need that gentle, human, kind, but clear way of starting that conversation. And that's where you that's where you get the most success from i think mm. so if i push you a bit further let's um let's unpack that box that kind clear human approach i mean what do what what do we write what do we say how do we start i know you're going to say each conversation or contact is different but it's, <laughs> what what do we do um i am tempted to say that very much but i think <laughs> we need to you need to display in a quite to begin with in quite a high level way what the concerns are and you need to do that in a non-judgmental manner and someone i was actually challenged recently on whether we can be non-judgmental and in essence offer an opinion on the customer circumstances in the same breath and i think absolutely we can we can phrase our intervention in a way that puts the issue on the table offers it up for inspection and then puts no obligation on the customer to engage mm. with it or not and then that means that you are creating interactions with people that not need it per se, but are able to engage with, as as Laura said, able to engage with the most with the useful things that you can offer. And of course, if you don't have that relevancy, that that's something to offer behind this conversation, and that is is very easy to forget. Weirdly, you're mm -hmm. going to get really stuck. So Elizabeth, you're listening in there. How do you see things from the energy sector perspective? I'm assuming sometimes firms there don't have quite as much frequent contact as those in uh, in financial services. So how do you start from cold there? It's a real challenge, particularly if your only um, expectation of your energy firm is, is that they send you a bill. Um, but what's really consistently worked is a pattern of open questions followed by active listening. So those open questions, and these might be, not always be in person, um, those open questions um, give people the opportunity to articulate their experience. And then the, the agent or the reader, if it's a web chat or something like that, um, can, can start to move towards understanding the relevancy, as we talked about already. And that active listening skill and um, really identifying what the different needs are that the, the, the person at the other side of the conversation is articulating 
articulating means that the needs themselves don't necessarily have to be dropped in in any kind of clunky or unnatural way because by um leading someone to um, express their experiences um, and, and giving them the opportunity through those op open questions, you can have the conversation much more focused on the service that your firm is going to provide. Mm, that's, that's really important. Mark, if, if you're there, I'll let you come in at, at any, any point here. And sure. um, yeah, Mark, you're there. We can hear you. Hallelujah. Yeah. Well, hey, not sure why. <laughs> Yeah, I guess um, I would say it's important to recognise, as you say, that some people will be very aware of their potential vulnerability. Um, some may not, and some may be actively in denial, if that's such a thing. Mm. Um, to some extent, how you engage depends on uh, your assessment of the likelihood of harm and also the likelihood of that consumer being open to engaging. Um, I think digital is is interesting and as a channel has some advantages um if the risk of harm is not too great then you can add resources into the customer journey that uh, a customer can self select um and indeed you can nudge them towards content about uh vulnerability and that might be appropriate in some circumstances um and of course those can then lead into uh potential agent engagement uh, via the phone or, or whatever channel uh, the customer wants. I think there are cases where there is more risk of harm or where a customer hasn't self-selected. Um, and it might be that you need a clear intervention then. Um, so, for example, in an application process, um, you might have to put a break in, in that process um, until there is some comfortable that, comfort that the customer is not vulnerable. Um, and I think, as Elizabeth says, that's where actually asking empathetic, open questions to gain a better understanding is a really good way of starting that engagement. Mm. So we'll push you, and I'm sure the audience will as well, with their questions about what some of these open, empathetic uh, kind of prompts might be. But you mentioned something really interesting in there, Mark, which was uh, the resources uh, that might indicate or help us start to form a picture that there might be some extra support needs. What did you have in mind there? So I'm thinking uh, of things, for example, uh, the Barclay Card Money Worries Hub, uh, mm. I think is an excellent um, example of uh, content that people can, can go and access. Um, and in a digital environment, of course, you will see them accessing that particular content. Um, so then starting and being able to say, we've noticed you've looked at this, um, might be one way of starting that conversation. Mm -hmm. um, I think, so having been involved in a past life in, in development of, of said content, I think you, with that sort of thing, you're, you're juggling, you want to have that content available to as many people as possible. So you put it on your .co.uk public site, but then that doesn't give you the data as to who it is that specifically accessed it because they're not doing it behind their login. So there's, there's challenges there as well. Mm. Yeah, and it's I guess part of the attraction of um, not doing it via your login is you can explore these things without consequence. But as you said, Laura, you can't then capture who's doing it. Absolutely. I did I, I did hear something very interesting this week, uh, and I don't know about if you work for a firm. I don't know if you're allowed to then bank with another firm. Maybe there's an unwritten code here. But the the Lloyd's app uh, apparently now has um, some radio buttons. Uh, in regular journeys, regular kind of tasks where you can indicate uh, different forms of support need. 
uh, particularly relating to disability. So that might be one one halfway house between the two. Let, let's let's move the question on, and we'll come to some uh, questions from the the audience in a moment. But I want to think about the shift from the identification of vulnerability in customer data to conversation. And we'll start with you, Mark, uh, and continue this. So I'd like you to consider the following situation. Um, I'm a firm. I know that's hard to believe, but I'm a firm. Uh, customer account transaction data tells me that a, a sizable number of my customers are spending in a way that will probably lead them going into collections in three months' time. Now, I, I want to stop that happening. And I, I think that I want to start a conversation with these customers about their financial vulnerability. But they're not expecting this, and perhaps they don't even think they're financially vulnerable at all. So, Mark, starting with you and then on to Elizabeth, how do I move from identification to conversation here? What, what do I do? What do I say? Mm. So, as a firm, we do uh, sometimes see people exhibiting behavior on their accounts, um, which does potentially indicate a risk of harm. Um, and in those situations, uh, we may need to restrict access to credit. And clearly not everybody is going to be happy in that situation. Um, I do believe, however, that if you are coming from the right place and if you're demonstrating empathy, uh, if you genuinely have the customer's best interest at heart, then the majority of customers will appreciate that you're looking out for them. Uh, in those circumstances, uh, we aim to be very clear in the messaging. So we will explain uh, what we are seeing, so what is causing the concern, uh, what we are going to do as a result, um, and then crucially, what its impact is for the customer. Um, we may also refer to other sources of support, not just our own, um, as we're aware that in these sort of circumstances, people quite often are going to want to get advice from a third party. Uh, so we try to do all of that while demonstrating that crucial empathy. Mm, it's kind of, so Elizabeth, it's, how do we get this empathy across? I mean, we're talking here uh, about using customer data and then making contact with customers. H how do we how do we convey this empathy? How do we convey that we care, that we want to help the customer? What should we be doing here? Well, firstly, I'd like to highlight there's something really important here about pace. So we heard there an example of where an, an, an action was going to be taken and, and making sure there's a, a really clear reasoning behind that and wherever possible and, and obviously the urgency will vary enormously from from case to case and but where it, there is the opportunity um to um set expectations ahead of any action and um, because that helps you with the with putting the interaction with the firm into the feeling of a conversation now in an ideal scenario you would see someone self-identify OK, or to, to say, actually, I, I do have this challenge and I recognize that this firm can help me. But before that, there's this previous step around that, which is I doing that um, self-acknowledgement um, and then acknowledging that the firm has some, anything to do with that. Now, when it comes to self-acknowledgement, there's some really interesting um, behavioral research about um, how people associate with with hearing about other groups or communities. So messaging that sounds a bit like um, we know it's tough out there right now. That's not personal. And here's a set of resources which our customers have found really useful. Mm. And putting that out there before you even start a conversation that's specific, that's a response to that data. So that's the the before the action and opting in. Um, and then that follow up about the services that, that would be appropriate in response to that. So not only we know it's tough out there and a lot of people are, are facing some really difficult financial situations. 
what we can do for you is and then lay those out. Now, that might only get you a very small nudge step, mini step forward, uh, but it's helping put that baseline out there that it's a relevant conversation Mm -hmm. um, and that you're not alone in that experience. And that already sets that expectation that this is a firm who who has the, the capacity for empathy and mm. then the tone of the communication. So whether or not it's avoiding some of those bold text red boxes that we might have seen in another world on, on letters and um, just transferring those over to email. Um, and then also the, the tone of, of the of voice and, and training staff up if they are going to be interacting on the phone and um, to make sure that they are communicating in that kind and clear tone that we talked about earlier. Mm. And a, a great resource there is the uh, the cabinet office. Uh, the, uh, I have a, a resource called Mindspace, M-I-N-D-S-P-A-C-E, which summarizes some of the behavioral techniques that uh, can be used. It's a, I've got a question here, Laura, off the back of what, what you, you said earlier and Mark's point as well. And it's about the, uh, that engagement aspect that Elizabeth was talking about there, but in terms of the trade-off between, uh, private sites where we know something about the person who's seeking some information about what might happen if they disclose or types of support and the public sites where kind of we reach more people. It's a question from Ian Phillips, one of our facilitators on the Vulnerability Academy. What, how do we balance the two here? Because there's a trade off. Where, where should we be, we be putting our money and our, our investment? I think that so engagement is absolutely key. You know, there's no point trying to, um, to push out proactively if you're not going to get the engagement back with you know, in that rapport and that the um, customer wants to get involved and help and and I think that is absolutely key and I, I think maybe it was Elizabeth somebody referred to earlier that you know they need to recognize that they need help and are ready to accept that therefore if you had to make a decision one way or the other in, in a choice of where to put resource I would say put it towards spaces where people are acknowledging and and recognizing that they need help and are ready to accept that so that's where you're going to get that biggest bang for your buck you know for so for example proactive cold outreach on you know it's a pilot I did a couple of years ago in a previous role to to customers who were showing those early signs of, of um financial difficulty we, we tried various different communications channels to see what was most effective and that outbound proactive calling typically gets an extremely low response rate i think it was about just under two percent of actual successful conversations from the number of of customers that we reached out to because in part some of them weren't you know, some of it is the behavioral economics you're not reaching them on their terms in the channel that they want to be engaged with but some of it a lot of it was people because you're that further upstream you haven't started bouncing off the limits of your accounts and incurring unpaid transaction fees yet you haven't potentially seen that significant reduction in income that's driving awareness that you're going to struggle they're just not recognizing it yet and they're not ready to engage so I would absolutely say focus your resource if you had to make that choice on, on where you know the cohort you know that are ready to engage mm. and, and, and Mark there's a question here from uh, Ken which relates to that, that engagement aspect you were talking about building um uh, elements, pit stops, breaks uh, in in, uh, in, the, in the identification engagement uh, piece for vulnerability. Uh, Ken's pointing out there's the trade-off here. You, you're going to maybe you'll get more engagement, but you get more dropouts, and that's a real risk for a digital first company. Maybe. So I th I suppose it's it's interesting. You can argue that um, that people want the happy path. They want the easy route through. They want the the way through your site and your application. 
um, that is as easy as possible. Um, for sure, there is a cohort of people for that. Uh, that that is true. Um, I guess it depends on your attitude towards um, vulnerable consumers and whether actually you see them as a potential revenue stream for your business um, or whether it's actually a cost. Mm. Um, and I would say, you know, kind of more and more, actually, people are aware of vulnerability, both um, you know, people acknowledging their own vulnerability, but also in general. And I think there is an acceptance that um, and an expectation that some of these kind of questions and nudges and services will be there for people to navigate through. I think if you use them carefully and um, and thoughtfully and still concentrate on the user experience going through, actually, you don't necessarily need to see um, much in the way of dropout um, by putting some of these interventions around your core journey. Mm. Okay. I'm going to come on to a question, uh, and, and Martin uh, has, has brought uh, up over the course of the series of the podcast we've done around the issue of, of gambling. So, Dan and Laura, I'll turn to you here. So, I'm still a firm. Uh, I'm looking at my account data again, uh, and I'm seeing a sizable number of customers are spending significant amounts of their income uh, gambling. Uh, some of these will definitely get into financial difficulty, but for others, the picture isn't as clear, and I want to help as many as I can. So, Dan, starting with you. How do I move from identification to conversation here in relation to these gambling uh, transactions? What do I do? What do I say? Such an interesting question. Uh, the, the data that we're talking about here, I think, can be something of a blunt instrument, as I'm, I think we're all aware. We, we don't we don't know that these customers have a gambling problem. If they do, we don't know where these customers are on the cycle of change. We don't know what their personal circumstances might be what social capital they might have. We, we actually we actually don't know very much about them at all, as tempting as it might feel to assume otherwise. And the research base for the trans-theoretical model and motivational interviewing show us that if you're too direct and forceful with people who don't yet want to change, who don't yet acknowledge a problem, and those people are likely to be in the majority, those people will disengage from you entirely. You're just going to get a neutral or a negative response. So the first thing we need to think about is just being really cautious of any urges we might have to be overly parental. We don't want to go anywhere near the warnings on cigarette packets or or the warnings on gambling adverts either because we can be we can be reasonably confident that, that approach isn't going to work. So like a few of us started this conversation explaining we need to be gentle, we need to be exploratory we need to be really human and we need to be conversational. It, it's about creating an environment that empowers the customer to talk to us about gambling in this really safe, non-judgmental manner. And actually, I think what firms will find is that the majority of customers won't engage. And I think recent studies have somewhat started to show that. But I had a really fantastic catch up with Gamke yesterday and was reminded that even if one customer engages with an intervention like this and accesses support, and like we mentioned to begin with, we must make sure that we are well informed by expertise like Gamgare with what happens after this has been identified and discussed, it's it's worth doing. My mm. team has a has a long 
large amount of conversations with customers every day about gambling. They're always aiming to build that relationship with the customer, to listen and to be listened to so that the customer can get the right support. And being frank, a lot of conversations don't end that way, but they can get their collective energy from those successes, those moments where the customer does contact a gambling charity or mutual aid or those moments where a customer calls back the next day and thanks us for contacting mm. emergency services because if we hadn't done so, their gambling debts might have killed them. Yeah. Now, that might be rare, but to say that they're worth all those difficult conversations is an understatement. So I don't, given that, going back to the question, we've got to ask ourselves why we're doing this. Are we mm. talking about gambling to help customers avoid financial difficulties and escape from a life-threatening illness? Or are we managing our anxiety as a firm about customers going into collections? Because if I think if we enter the firm, if we enter a piece of work like this focusing on the latter, we start to get ourselves into a bit of hot water and we start to mm-hmm. be tempted by behaviours like the the um, letters with, with angry red letters at the top that yeah. are going to work. So I think when we're talking about gambling, when we're talking about addiction, we need to see anything we do is actually as part of our collective social responsibility over and above any business goals or we're likely to get frustrated. Right. Okay. So the timing element is there. You mentioned the uh, the theory or the cycle of change where somebody is ready to to engage and take action. So so Laura, is, is the upshot from what Dan is saying there that the intervention where we know there is gambling and financial difficulty is perhaps more palatable and realistic than intervention on gambling alone? I don't think all the points that Dan raised about are they ready to engage are discounted just by the fact that we can see that there is impending financial difficulties there as well. I don't think that the financial difficulty is an indication of of a point of the customer on that cycle of change. Therefore, I don't think it makes them necessary. It doesn't guarantee you that they are any more ready to engage with you. You know, we've seen for ourselves the extreme lengths that the problem gamblers will, in the grip of their addiction, will go to in order to continue gambling, including getting it you know, finding the most elaborate ways possible to get around the positive friction measures they've already put in place to stop themselves. Mm. So so I don't think just because the financial difficulty is now evident indicates that necessarily that change in the customer's psychology is, is there and that they're ready to, to engage yet. So I think all the, the points Dan raised are, are still absolutely relevant and applicable uh, in that circumstance as, as well. And there is that real risk, as, as Dan said, you know, if you get them at the wrong time, they will completely disengage. The relationship will be broken. They will feel insulted. You know, how dare the bank judge me for my gambling? Stop spying on me. What I'm doing isn't breaking the law. Are you are you, are you intervening with customers? Is he spending lots of money on booze and strip clubs as well? You know, you're, you've stepped into that place, risking being seen to make a moral judgment on, on a customer's legal behavior. So it's, it's a big call to make for firms as to when and how to engage um, in this space. Really big one. Don, who's going to come in there? Uh, I was, Chris. Um, I think it's interesting. I, I mean, whilst I would agree, um, I think if you look at the uh, some of the false decisions, I think there are cases where there is a clear expectation that the firm would engage um, to and and potentially, from a lending point of view, stop lending, for example, if they think that there is that level of potential harm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I guess that's an, an interesting one for us to think about. And I, and I know there's the, the ongoing debate in, uh, around a duty of care in financial services. Um, but it feels like we're going to be returning to that in the, in the near future. 
Yeah, and I would agree. I think that's potentially a different question as to whether you would lend to them when you can see whether there is where there's you, know, you think that lend that money is then going to be spent on gambling. I think that's different to a more sort of cold outreach conversation around. We think you've got a gambling problem. Obviously, mm. put more sensitively than that. <laughs> let, let, let's keep pushing with this one. And um, it's interesting. There, there is a very good GamCare um, toolkit that was released just a couple of weeks ago that's well worth finding uh, and it has um, guidance for financial services and other essential services there. But uh, both um, Addy and Jennifer have, 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 have tuned into the points that you're making here. And Addy is asking, firstly, uh, does the panel have any thoughts on how to engage customers who may be defensive or offended or even in denial to tune into kind of what Dan was saying about the cycle of change, about their, their vulnerability? So who wants to take that one? I'm happy to, yeah. I think there's a balance to be struck. Just just like Mark was saying, there are points where you have to make a decision as a firm, no matter what the customer says. And so you have to communicate that decision in, in a in a calm way that makes makes it clear that you're balancing the firm's needs against what we've seen. But if if you're in a position where if if you're not in that position, if and this is something that we struggle with with our frontline staff sometimes because they are they they, they get hired because they are empathetic kind people they can see they might be able to see that somebody is spending a large amount of money on gambling per as compared to their salary and if they're asking the vulnerable customer team here for advice if they're asking if they're saying i really want to ask this customer if they're okay but they've not mentioned anything about gambling at all they just want a bank statement the team would probably say don't say anything don't don't bring it up because we the research does show that you get a better response if you allow that customer even subtly to bring it to the table themselves rather than reaching out in a way that might be intrusive and especially as as other people said timing is is everything it's very very tempting to get sidetracked away from the core banking issue that a customer might be in touch about to talk about something that might be alarming in our heads but not in the customers mm. okay so laura and mark what, what do you think about them how much space do we give to people to self-disclose or bring it to the table as dan has put it how long do we leave it when we can see this happening in front of our, our eyes in the data i think we have to recognize that unless what the customer is doing is is breaking the law or in the example that Mark gave her they're they're wanting to take on debt that we know or we have a strong suspicion will be used for you know to to their detriment i i think you have to accept that a bank a financial services provider is just that we're not social workers we're not a moral body there to pass judgment on on customers and their lives and what they're doing and we have to respect that our customers have a right to, to privacy if they don't want to to engage with us on something that that we're pushing it too far and overreaching our role in their lives and the contract that we have with them if if we do that now you know as much as we might want to because we we can see things that um are concerning if you overstep the mark they're not going to engage anyway so you're not going to be able to help them and you will have potentially broken that trust and that and that ability to to help them in future if they do get to the stage of, of recognizing that that they need it um so i think that is is really important to remember that 
mm. forcing the point when the customer isn't ready to be forced isn't going to help anybody and potentially mm. could do more detriment longer term. And so we were really we really welcomed the clarification from the FCA in GC 2003, that recognition that there will be times when it is not appropriate to push the conversation with the customer. Mm. I just want to build on that, if that's okay, because I'm reminded of the beginning of the conversation where we talked about open questions. And actually, we find open questions to be a bit of a risk sometimes when, especially at the early stages of engaging with somebody vulnerable, because returning to the idea of, of what can we do with the information when it's been given to us, we do find sometimes, especially if the staff are very skilled at open questions, a lot of them are, a lot of our staff are training to be counsellors or have other qualifications in this area. What might happen is that the customer builds a rapport with our staff that is too strong. That means that they turn away from support that is much more appropriate, much more long-term and can actually meet their needs because they have got too much psychological satisfaction from interacting with our staff and disclosing and talking to them. So sometimes I think it there is a balancing act to be struck between asking very direct questions that aim at the results that we can achieve for the customer and asking open questions that increase rapport with that customer. It's, it's, it can be really, really difficult. Mm. And it's, it's knowing that you, you, you have the treatments or the support in place if the customer does bring up uh, an issue or a situation that they would like help from because it's one thing exactly. knowing something it's another thing uh, providing the support i just want to make sure jennifer's point isn't isn't lost and she she's saying uh here uh that someone uh discloses uh or self-identifies a vulnerable situations but they're not willing to get into this 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 discussion about it they want to close it down however we know something uh, about this situation. So how far, Jennifer's asking, should we tailor our support on what we perceive their need might be? Um, how, how far should we push that? Um, Laura, Dan, Mark, Elizabeth? I think the key in that sort of situation is to focus on what they need rather than their circumstances, especially if they're indicating they don't want to go deeper into the circumstances. So so here, kind of, you know, the open question approach of, you know, is, is there anything that I can help you with that would, you know, support that situation and, and just focus on the needs. Is there any additional need you have as a result of that? That takes it back to a much more practical help-based conversation that allows the customer to feel not that you're probing into their private life, but that you're trying to help them and that they can see there is a potential benefit to them of engaging with that type of a conversation. So I think for me, it always comes down to both in the conversations, but also in any data that you might capture on your systems as a result, <coughs> sorry, excuse me, of, of a self-disclosure is you're capturing the needs, not, not what's going on in their life, because that life, what's going on in their life doesn't tell the next person, the next customer service agent that sees that information, what it is they need. And so they end up trying to second guess, which means you get it wrong, potentially. Mm. Yeah, exactly. What makes us vulnerable is not the same as what we're vulnerable to. Uh, was it Dan or Mark that was trying to come in there? Uh, I would, I would completely agree. That's very <laughs> succinct. Thank you, Mark. <laughs> so we've been talking about gambling here. Um, so, but let's just broaden things out a little bit. And I just want to talk about um, uh, the, the, the the public customers. And we we know from the discussions we're having that firms can identify from data and you know we know that some firms are moving from data to conversation in that gamcare toolkit there is a case example of barclays uh, doing just that we know other firms are planning this as well but how how ready are the public 
for firms to start doing this routinely? And do firms really want to get into this territory, given that some think it could lead to constant surveillance of our spending? Mark, can we pick up with you on that one? I mean, I would say it seems that the public are generally ready for this. And indeed, there is some expectation. I think the challenge comes um, when, as you say, as an individual, some of your liberties um, are taken away as a result. Um, in the same way, we've seen people getting angry because um, COVID restrictions might mean they can't go to the casino. I think they would be even more dismayed if the bank decides that they can't have the money to go to the casino. Mm. Um, I think to some extent, we do need more of this discussion on a duty of care in financial services. Um, including whether um, we want financial institutions to make decisions for us as individuals. Mm. I think the FCA principles suggest consumers are responsible for their own decisions. Um, my personal view is that's the appropriate way to go. Mm. Does anyone agree or disagree with Mark? I would disagree that they are ready for it to an extent when you look at the response rates to proactive outbound contact so i referenced before the um you know the sort of financial difficulty outbound contact pilot that i ran a couple of years ago where the response rate to outbound proactive cold phone calling cold in the sense of the there was no indication from the you know the customer hadn't triggered anything in this we'd messaged them and said we'd like to phone you to talk to you about this and we reached just under two percent of customers that means 98 percent didn't want to to engage and um and talk to us about this didn't want us to be doing this or didn't certainly didn't want to have an engagement as a result of it and kind of what's the point of doing it if it doesn't result in an engagement and an ability to, to help the customer and with the, the Barclays pilot that's in the the GAM care report my, my understanding is that the response rates weren't significantly higher as a proportion of the overall SMS outreach than mm -hmm. than that financial vulnerability pilot of mine so whilst yes you have a really great conversation that makes a big difference with those that do engage actually you're still at well over 90% of your customer base that that don't want that so mm -hmm. that that would be my take on it and i think also the difference with that Barclays pilot that's referenced in the gamcare report is part of the data that was used to identify customers to include in the scope it was it was contact there was that sort of there was an element that was driven by the customer themselves. They'd activated the Barclays gambling yes. block in their app. So you did have some indication from the customer on this as well. And even so, you you, you didn't get that significantly higher response rate. So and I would query Mark's assertion that they are ready for it. Yeah, it's, and it could be very much having sat with many outbound calling teams, uh, the success of fraud awareness sometimes leads to a cold call from your bank in quotes or no quotes, uh, being uh, queried by the customer. So is that suspicion? I think the one thing I took from the uh, the Barclays case study and the GAMCARE report is there were no complaints. As you said, um, so Laura, they had activated the gambling block on many occasions. Okay, I want to shift things just a little bit now to think about, uh, yeah, I'm going to keep hammering on this point, starting conversations, how we practically do that. And I want to start on chat. So we talked about data. Let's talk about the chat mechanism I'm thinking of chat on an app, a messenger style interface. And I'll go to Dan here. Dan, Paul Simon said there were 50 ways to leave your lover. But Dan, how many ways are there to start a conversation from cold about vulnerability using just chat? I think like Paul Simon, I'm going to cheat on this question a little bit. I <laughs> like I mentioned last week, lots of the conversations we start about vulnerability over chat aren't really cold per se. Our team doesn't tend to start conversations using chat without a clear way into discussing something. So one of the customer service frontline team might have noticed something in the chat 
that gives them pause. And I'm emphasizing on in the chat, I'm emphasizing on what they're saying, em- very much emphasizing what they're saying in that conversation. Perhaps mm. the customer's worried about spending, gambling, mental health, or they mentioned in passing a mental health problem or a disability or, or so many other things. And like I said a second ago, most customers aren't in touch to discuss vulnerability. They're in touch to discuss a banking problem. And the vulnerability comes up in passing or it comes up at a point of friction between them and us. And I'm not saying that this is the ideal way for vulnerability to be disclosed, but it is the, the reality of it. And so this is, this is our way in. We want to take this disclosure and we want to use it to construct that gentle question or set of questions, trying to very carefully make all of the balancing acts that we've been talking about today, encouraging the customer to engage with us and tell us more. And it is, I just want to emphasize timing so much because Mm -hmm. it's such an easy trap to fall into. And it's, it's actually a trap that I've experienced personally when I was younger, when I was banking, where I was speaking to somebody in a private room in the back of a branch about a payment problem. They'd noticed something that was amiss with my account. And then I would just kind of had this, a question sprung on me about my health, which is so strange and quite funny in hindsight. But you can see it happen. Somebody might have been defrauded and mentioned being anxious. Mm. And suddenly, instead of talking about fraud, which is quite an urgent issue for that customer, we are starting a conversation about a anxiety disorder and it, it doesn't work. Mm. So it seems one of the themes that's coming through here is is try not to do this from cold. This is about mm. either warming up via intelligence and data and creating a picture about the customer or trying to take that customer to the place where they're ready to open up and self-identify a little more. That was what Elizabeth was saying saying earlier. I've, I've understood that correctly? Absolutely. And I think uh, and I'm at risk of harping on about disclosure environments, but I think that the more firms integrate those in every possible area of their journeys within their technology, the, the easier this is going to become for everyone. Right. We'll come to them in a, in a second. <laughs> I'm going to uh, turn to Laura, uh, mainly because I, I wasn't satisfied just with Paul Simon, but Girls Aloud said there were a hundred ways to say sorry. Uh, so, Laura, how many ways are they to start a conversation using just voice or in person from cold? How, do, how does it work? Yes, I, I would agree with, with everything that, that Dan said, that you are looking for cues in that conversation. You're picking up on those cues. And so because you've picked up on a cue, it's not necessarily cold. It's a natural flow of the conversation. But I would absolutely also agree with Dan that if that takes the conversation away from the most pressing thing that's on the customer's mind, that's not not going to work either. Um, so I think the advantage you have when it's in a, it's a telephone or a face-to-face environment is you have more cues potentially than you might have uh, in a chat to pick up on. You know, we've all heard the stat about only 7% of, of communication is verbal, then tone and voice gives you 38% more and body language, the remaining 55%. So you definitely have more cues to go on and, and pick up on but at the same time it still absolutely has to be done sensitively and still in that response to the customer of gauging where they want to go and how far they want to go so we we absolutely we train all our, our customer facing colleagues to, to identify and pick up on those cues and then to have skillful and sensitive conversations with them using tools such as the, the Texas and, and idea models as well and can we be persistent laura can we, you know, if, if it isn't the right time to talk now and someone's 
said something, but they're uncomfortable, we can note this and come back to it. You know, uh, Ellie has mentioned here that sometimes they have to record simply via vulnerability identified because the conversation hasn't got to the point where the customer's opened up. Can we return to this? So, yeah, we also have the capability to, to capture observed vulnerability on our systems without um, breaching GDPR. Um, but I think, you know, not all vulnerability is, is permanent. It can be temporary and it can be fluctuating. So you still, you know, the next time that customer comes in, you'd still need to make a, an assessment and a call on, on kind of what you were picking up on in that next interaction as to whether this was whether we were still observing vulnerability, whether this was still a, a concern and then gauge whether the customer was was ready to go any closer to it in that subsequent conversation if it was okay i'm going to move us into disclosure uh, environments and elizabeth you clearly uh, not into paul simon or girls allowed maybe i should have referenced the mega death 50 ways to die but kind of a uh, elizabeth disclosure environments uh, more firms are starting to reduce ways uh, during online journeys and platforms and uh, other contact for customers to tell them about a vulnerable situation and this seems to be growing in popularity. So what's your view on disclosure environments in general? They seem to be evidence to be a really important part of the context because you can have amazingly trained staff um, to have an interaction. You can have um, a really well-designed process, um, but ultimately, to be able to look at that context more broadly will be a really core part of making sure that for the customer, it feels like a safe space to be having those very sensitive conversations. I think it's really important, though, to acknowledge just how much time, energy and resource um, it will take to respond to your own customer base and the channels that you offer and to make sure that that disclosure environment reflects what what your customers need um, and what your um, services are going to provide. Do you see disclosure environments in the, the energy sector at the moment? Are there examples of uh, them being used or is this an aspiration that's being worked towards? So far, it's very much connected to the, the training that um, individual um, the members of, of, of staff are, are undertaking. It's a, a very core interaction. So as you're onboarded, um, you're, the, the connection between your um, the way you express the firm's brand um, is, is going to contribute to or risks um, damaging uh, a disclosure environment. And what seems to be um, less prevalent is the acknowledgement that a disclosure environment goes beyond one journey or one interaction. So you can have um, a specialist team or, or indeed a, um, an interaction that's based on, on voice, which has had an enormous amount of energy and passion poured into it for a disclosure environment. Um, but it hasn't reached the letters that go out to the price change, for example, and then the, the clashing of the tone results in, in the customer um, losing trust in that firm. Um, mm. So I think it's very important that that's looked at in the round rather than, for example, a lot of work being put into a collections journey, um, and but excluding um, other journeys that, that have still very important implications for what the customer expects in terms of tone and therefore support. Mm. So different channels and at different points with an emphasis on early intervention. Dan, you're an advocate for disclosure environments. What do they mean to Monzo? I'm really excited about their future for not just for us, but for banking in general. I think I'm, I'm really interested in, in what was just said about tone. It's, it could not be more important to have that consistent tone. I couldn't agree with that more. It would, it, 
it, I'm kind of getting <laughs> a bit of a, a fear, one of those fear sensations up the back of my neck of imagining somebody having a wonderful conversation with the vulnerable customer team via the disclosure environment and then receiving something in that was the polar opposite somewhere else. As you're so right, it would absolutely mm. devastate that fledgling relationship. I think that it's so important, as has already been said, to make sure that the way you I don't know, pitch that environment is incredibly safe, is incredibly boundaried, that expectations are set before the conversation's even begun, that you about what the conversation is going to feel like and what's going to happen with it and what's going to happen with the data that is uncovered during that conversation as well. That's extremely important. Mm. Um, so we go on. No, go on. No, I was going to I was going to say we're using disclosure environments here as a as a general term to uh, about the encouragement to customers to tell us things. At Monzo, you've got the share with us uh, function. We've seen that um, uh, also appearing uh, at NatWest have a share of us function as well. Uh, it's called something different, I believe, and other banks are, are, are working towards this, including using kind of chatbots as well. Where do you think disclosure environments are going to go in terms of uh, digital uh, platforms and online uh, journeys? It's very difficult to say. I, I'm, I'm personally quite sceptical of, of any automation beyond a very powerful routing mechanism. I think that the anything that the chat the chatbot's place ends after the chatbot has identified what the disclosure is about and given that conversation to a human being that has the expertise to deal with it. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm I don't know. Despite my age and the firm I work for, I'm I'm extremely skeptical about. Um, anything even close to artificial intelligence when it comes to actually talking to vulnerable people about vulnerability or or even engaging with them to reveal something about vulnerability. I find mm. I, I'm concerned that at worst, uh, at best you don't get engagement and at worst you, you cause some very real upset. Mark, do you allay Dan's fears here or do you share his concerns? I would tend to agree. I think, I think that, you know, so chatbots can be extremely useful, um, in servicing people, whether they are vulnerable or not on particular things. So if you just want a, a balance on your account, then that's fine to use a chatbot. But when you're actually talking about, um, disclosing a vulnerability, to be honest, I don't think you will beat having a skilled person, uh, having a, direct conversation with that individual mm, okay and, and laura how are disclosure environments developing at nationwide yeah I, I would agree with what's what's been said so far so i mean nationwide at the moment our our main focus on disclosure environments has been in our our human channels so the skillful conversations but then also the, the sort of the necessary fields on the back end systems to to capture what has been disclosed um, i'll be very interested to see how 
the the NatWest Banking My Way tool uh, unfolds, um, it'd be brilliant if in sort of six months' time or whatever they're willing to share any insight information on sort of what take up and use of the the tool has been like. Um, having had a look at it, I feel like it is from the sorts of things it's offering up. It is almost kind of it's just a digital front self serve face to the kind of back end system that our colleagues would use to capture information in a, a mediated interaction. So it is saying, you know, in this sort of situation, I need more, you know, tick, I need more time for, to make the decision or speak more slowly and clearly. It's it's giving an indication of needs they have in a more mediated environment. So it isn't a tool that's taking it into a full sort of digital disclosure environment in the sense of how to then disclose what they need in a digital what they need from a digital channel they're just sort of saying in a digital channel what they need in a mediated channel so it'd be really interesting to see mm. how that evolves and if you know what they learn from that is is worth learning and shows that it is successful and it's a valuable tool then i think absolutely we would we would look at whether it's something we could um offer up for our customers as well fantastic okay last question but before i ask that just to flag up there is a, an excellent citizens advice report uh, around um, self-identification and essential services, which Elizabeth will no doubt be able to jog my memory of the absolute title in a moment. And uh, the Money Advice Trust and Money Advice Liaison Group are releasing a report on November the 4th, all about data, uh, disclosure, vulnerability, and GDPR, which contains a section on disclosure environment. So Elizabeth, the last question uh, to you. Um, if you were a firm and you can invest in just one action, yeah, and don't say it's impossible, just one action. Uh, and it's identification by data, identification by staff, or self-identification by disclosure environments. What would it be and why? Only you, Chris, could pin me to one of these three, but I would have to say <laughs> that staff and disclosure environments have not been able to identify the numbers of people in need with the urgency that's required, particularly when we're talking about fluctuations in circumstances. So I prioritize data thinking about the speed of reaching people in need with the services that can support them. Right. Okay. Uh, Dan, one, just one action. What would it be? Well, because it's a gloriously hypothetical question, I'm going to imagine that I've got an unlimited budget to invest in disclosure <laughs> environments. I think that would win the day for me. I think that there is there is a lot of uncharted territory in getting these right, but if there was the time and the energy invested into iterating on what's and researching what's been built by lots of firms already, you could end up in a world that guarantees engagement, that the customer wants you to know about the situation, they want support, and we know this just by the merit of them choosing to engage with, with us and the tooling, and that means we can get the best possible outcomes for them and do everything to possible to avoid the points of difficulty and friction that might lead us to end up identifying them via data or staff in the future which might be a little bit utopian but it does sound exciting <laughs> mark you have the uh, the power for a utopian or dystopian future what would it be okay i would go i would agree i would go for the disclosure environments um and then in tandem he says trying to get two things in um <laughs> i would say uh that also this focus on kind of your brand and the trust and making sure that you have consistent un consistent um messaging around what people can uh, expect to benefit uh, from so what is the benefit of disclosing uh, that they have a vulnerability yeah that that return laura mark, mark slightly cheated there but i'm gonna be strict with you one and one alone <laughs> what's it to be sure 
So I, I can understand why Elizabeth is going for identification via data for, for the energy sectors, because that urgency of if, you know, the power goes off and someone needs it back on immediately or there's there's a risk of harm. I can absolutely see why pace and so on is is essential there. But that a person's relationship with their financial services organization is considerably less binary than that. And so as we've discussed at length today, you know, they need to be ready to be mm -hmm. identified and helped. You know, because it's what, what's the point of identifying them if you can't then help them if they don't want to then engage with the help. So therefore my my one would be self uh, would be on that disclosure environments and self identification. Yeah. But I do think that part of that is training your staff for Very where it's an immediate channel. Very good. Thank you very much. The uh, report from Citizens Advice was getting support to those who need it, how to improve consumer support in essential service. It's a very interesting read. With that, we've reached the end, sadly. If you've enjoyed it, uh, moneyadvicetrust.org slash vulnerability has all the resources and the links to the podcast. Until the next time, thank you very much to our guests, Mark Fiander, Dan Clark, Dr. Elizabeth Blakelock and Laura Tuff. And thank you to our audience for joining us. We'll see you again soon. Thank you. <laughs>